Good evening. 59 years since the Cuban Missile Crisis brought the world to the brink of Armageddon. A Giuliani associate is guilty of illegal campaign contributions to a pro-Trump PAC. And the battle heats up between Andrew Cuomo and Tish James. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, October 22nd, 2021. Rudy Giuliani's former associate, Lev Parnas, was convicted on six counts related to influence buying campaign finance schemes. A jury of eight men and four women found Parnas guilty of scheming with co-conspirators to use a backer's money to fund political contributions they hoped to trade for political favor for their budding joint cannabis venture. The Ukrainian businessman was also convicted for using money from Igor Fruman, who previously pleaded guilty and a fake company to funnel hundreds of thousands of political contributions to the GOP and pro-Donald Trump committees and then lying about it to the Federal Election Commission. Parnas faces up to five years in prison for each of five counts and a sixth count for falsifying records to the Federal Election Commission, carrying a 20-year maximum prison sentence. Co-defendant Andrei Kakushkin was also found guilty on two counts connected to his role in facilitating the campaign donations. And former President Donald Trump's new media powerhouse social network he's calling Truth Social was defaced by pranksters yesterday. The image of a defecating pig was posted to the account named Donald J. Trump. Soon afterwards, the site was pulled down. Trump has been banned by all major social networks after his supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr., promoted the social network on Fox News Wednesday night, saying the platform was for everyone to express their feelings and it would be in beta testing for the next few weeks and would stage a full launch in the first quarter of next year. And 59 years ago today, President John F. Kennedy announced to the nation the discovery of missiles from the Soviet Union in Cuba. The ensuing 10, day, 10 days brought the world closer to nuclear war than ever before. It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. Fourth, as a necessary military precaution, I have reinforced our base at Guantanamo, evacuated today the dependents of our personnel there, and ordered additional military units to be on a standby alert basis. We are asking tonight that an emergency meeting of the Security Council be convoked without delay to take action against this latest Soviet threat to world peace. Our resolution will call for the prompt dismantling and withdrawal of all offensive weapons in Cuba under the supervision of UN observers before the quarantine can be lifted. Seventh and finally, I call upon Chairman Khrushchev to haul and eliminate this clandestine, reckless, and provocative threat to world peace and to stable relations between our two nations by refraining from any action which will widen or deepen the present crisis and then by participating in a search for peaceful and permanent solutions. And that's President Kennedy 59 years ago today. That was a... Uh, Address to the nation that uh, in those days, three networks, the whole country was watching it. Vincent Intondi is uh, author of African Americans Against the Bomb. Cuban Missile Crisis was the closest that we ever came to uh, completely ending life on this planet. Uh, and 
the lessons that we often hear about is uh, that cooler heads prevailed or that uh, Khrushchev and Kennedy came to an agreement um, because of, you know, what, what they were, their intelligence and so on and so forth. But as, uh, as McNamara has, has made clear that it was luck and that we were, we were so close. And um, it was, it was truly, if we look back, if, if, if the Navy officer Arkhipov, the Soviet Navy officer, uh, if he didn't disobey orders, if he would have turned his keys, if he would have launched when they thought that uh, it had started, then we wouldn't be here having this conversation. And so it just uh, further shows uh, how dangerous nuclear weapons are to have on this planet. And uh, lastly, if you are going into a voting booth, regardless of party affiliation or anything else, um, to this day, when I walk in that voting booth for the president, the first question I ask myself is, if we ever have another Cuban Missile Crisis, who do I want sitting in Kennedy's chair? And that, to me, is the most important thing. We had Donald Trump as president threatening to bomb everybody in sight. Uh, what do you think of the leadership of today? The problem with uh, what we have today is, well, first of all, um, you know, with, with Donald Trump, you had a, a raise in heightened awareness about nuclear weapons that we hadn't seen really since the 1980s in this country uh, because of his rhetoric. And uh, people started realizing for the first time that we have a, a, a policy in which the president of the United States has sole authority to launch nuclear weapons. He does not need to get checks or balances for or permission from Congress uh, at any point. And so uh, the problem now is with Joe Biden being president, a lot of people had this collective sigh of relief that somehow now that Trump is out, we are in safer hands. The, pro the reality is that policy still remains today. And, uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, President Biden is not the same as Trump in many respects, but he has uh, increased the defensive spending. He has uh, completely signed on to the, the nuclear modernization plans of, of Trump and before him previous presidents. And so there's no change in those policies. And hopefully we'll see that change in the nuclear posture review that he puts out. But I have doubts that he will decrease the nuclear arsenal in any way. Um, so I think it's we're still in a very dangerous time when it comes to nuclear weapons. Vincent Intondi is author of African-Americans Against the Bomb. Dan Kovalik is a professor of international human rights and author of No More War. He says the conflict in Cuba started with an attempted invasion by the United States the previous year. Look, it really started with the United States attempts to overthrow the Cuban Revolution and Fidel Castro. You might remember the Bay of Pigs invasion that happened in 1961 that the U.S. gave some support to, though the CIA was disappointed not enough. But Castro was rightfully fearful of another in, uh, invasion or a real invasion from the United States. He actually wanted a deterrent in the Western Hemisphere in the form of nuclear missiles in Cuba, which Khrushchev was willing to comply with. For the United States and John Kennedy, this was unacceptable. Even though it has to be pointed out, the U.S. had analogous missiles in Turkey, not so far from the Soviet Union. You know, with the Monroe Doctrine and the view of the U.S. that it is preeminent in the Western Hemisphere, they simply could not allow missiles in Cuba, even of a deterrent in defensive nature. And that's what really brings things to a head quickly. The U.S. tried to blockade Cuba and told the Soviet Union that if they didn't get the missiles out of Cuba, that there would be serious repercussions, including possible war with the Soviet Union. What pulled us back well, from the war? I guess in many ways, I guess, one, the Soviet soldier, but also the John F. Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy didn't want a war, and they made a quiet deal with Khrushchev 
to remove the missiles from Turkey, which were really of concern to Khrushchev, even though the missiles were antiquated anyway and probably would have been removed. But they agreed to move, remove them within six months of the Soviet Union's removing the missiles from Cuba. So really it was diplomacy, old school diplomacy. Bobby Kennedy actually carried out on behalf of his brother John. And the other agreement, though, the other part of the agreement was the U.S. agreed not to invade Cuba. So in a sense, it worked from Castro's point of view, though apparently Castro was unhappy that Khrushchev decided to take out the missiles without consulting with him. He felt a bit betrayed. But in any case, Castro more or less secured the island from an invasion, and the Kennedys with Khrushchev were able to ratchet down this dangerous situation. What is the, what do we learn? Well, how did the American people respond to this? The speech, you know, that came on, you know, dinner hour. People are all over the country are watching it. Um, what effect did it have, and, and how is it similar or different from today? Well, I think Kennedy was largely seen as winning the chess match in the Caribbean. In fact, it was portrayed as if. Khrushchev had blinked that in effect many historians had tried to claim that because the part of the deal of the U.S. taking missiles out of Turkey was kept a secret. So Kennedy got the win. He was seen as the victor. He was seen as the tough guy who stared down Khrushchev in the Soviet Union. So he his popularity went way up. The problem we have today with Russia is the lack of dialogue between those two countries. There's never been a lack of dialogue to the degree that we have now. In the day, you'll see pictures of Kennedy hugging Khrushchev, right, of uh, Johnson shaking Brezhnev's hand and Carter shaking Brezhnev's hand. Now, to the extent Biden would embrace Putin, he would be attacked, you know. And so I think that's a huge difference. And I think that is putting the world in danger, certainly according to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, who believe we're closer to nuclear war than at any other time in history. Dan Kovlik is a professor of international human rights and author of No More War. A Russian naval commander, Vasily Alexandrovich Arkhipov, is often credited as the man who saved the world, a Soviet Navy officer who prevented a Soviet nuclear strike during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He lived a very quiet life and uh, died in 1998. He always said that he just did what he had to do. And the United States said today there would be no change in this country's longstanding support for Taiwan, even as China ramps up its military and has uh, been carrying out exercises near the island that it considers not a nuclear, not a um, independent country, but a breakaway province of China. Jen Psaki, White House Press Secretary, spoke today. Uh, that the United States will continue uh, to abide by, of course, is assisting Taiwan in maintaining a sufficient self-defense capability. Another principle is that the United States would regard any effort to determine the future of Taiwan by other than peaceful means, a threat to the peace and security of the Western Pacific and of grave concern to the United States. I would also note that uh, Secretary Austin also spoke to this um, earlier today, uh, and he said, as the Secretary of Defense, of course, nobody wants to see cross-strait issues come to blows. Certainly not President Biden. And there's no reason that it should. And that is certainly emblematic of our approach as well. 
Jen Psaki, the island nation, as I said earlier, is considered by China a breakaway province, and the Chinese government has said it intends to one day take it back. Meanwhile, on Friday, China said there is no room for compromise or concessions over the issue of Taiwan. And the leader of the 400 Maozo gang that police say is holding 17 members of a kidnapped missionary group in Haiti is seen in a video released yesterday saying he'll kill them if he doesn't get what he's demanding. The video posted on social media shows Wilson Joseph dressed in a blue suit, carrying a blue hat and wearing a large cross around his neck. He said in the video, I swear by thunder that if I don't get get what I'm asking for, I will put a bullet in the heads of these Americans. He also threatened Prime Minister Ariel Henry and Haiti's National Police Chief as he spoke in front of the open coffins that apparently held several members of his gang who were recently killed. You guys make me cry. I cry water, but I'm going to make you guys cry blood, he said. Press Secretary Jen Psaki earlier today. We are working around the clock to bring these people home. They're U.S. citizens, and there has been targeting over the course of the last few years of U.S. citizens in Haiti and other countries, too. It's not the only country, but since we're talking about Haiti and, and for kidnapping for ransom, that is one of the reasons that the State Department issued the warning they did in August about uh, about the risk of kidnapping for ransom. So this is a, a little bit of a different category of individuals in the country and what they're being targeted for. That's why we issued that warning. At the same time, uh, we are continuing to provide humanitarian assistance, to work with officials on the ground, to work through our embassy, to certainly address the underlying conditions as people in the country uh, attempt to move forward or try to recover from a combination of the earthquake uh, and the assassination of the leader. And earlier this week, authorities said the gang was demanding $1 million per person, although it wasn't immediately clear that included the five children in the group, among them an eight-month-old child. Sixteen Americans and one Canadian were abducted along with their Haitian driver. The missionaries are with the Ohio-based Christian Aid Ministries, which held a news conference before someone posted the video of the gang leader. A spokesperson for the religious group said that the families of those who had been kidnapped are from Amish, Mennonite, and other conservative Anabaptist communities in Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Tennessee, Pennsylvania, Oregon, and Ontario, Canada. In addition to kidnappings, the gangs also are blamed for blocking gas distribution terminals and hijacking supply trucks, which officials say has led to a shortage of fuel. Many gas stations now remain closed for days at a time, and the lack of fuel is so dire that the CEO of the Haitian gas giant uh, company announced on Tuesday that 150 of its 15 hundred branches countrywide are out of diesel and millions more americans can get covid19 booster uh, shots and choose a different company's vaccine for that next shot that's according to federal health officials yesterday the food and drug administration had already authorized an expansion of the nation's booster campaign and it was also endorsed by cdc uh, cdc advisory panel Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky had the final word on who gets the extra doses. Yesterday, CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP, discussed the data for Moderna and Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 booster doses. Following a robust discussion, the committee unanimously recommended expanding who may benefit from a booster dose. Following their deliberation, I endorse their recommendations such that we now have booster recommendations for all three authorized COVID-19 vaccines. 
I want to state clearly our current recommendations for COVID-19 booster doses. For those who received an mRNA vaccine, Pfizer or Moderna, there are several groups of people who are eligible for a booster shot six months or more after their primary series, including those who are 65 and older, those who are 18 and older and live in long-term care settings, have underlying medical conditions, or live or work in high-risk settings. For those who received a Johnson & Johnson vaccine, all people 18 or older who were vaccinated two or more months ago are eligible for a booster shot. Now that there are recommendations for booster doses for all vaccine primary series, the next question is, with what? Some people may have a preference for the vaccine type that they originally received because they did very well with their initial series. For all three vaccines, this is perfectly fine. And now with 10 months of vaccine experience, some may have an express preference for one booster type over another. FDA's authorizations and CDC's recommendations now allow for this type of mix and match. The recommendations made yesterday are yet another demonstration of our fundamental commitment to all of you to never lose sight of our collective goal to protect as many people as possible from COVID-19. All three COVID-19 vaccines authorized in the United States are extraordinarily safe, as demonstrated by the over 410 million vaccine doses already given. And they are highly effective in reducing the risk of severe disease, hospitalization, and death, even in the midst of the widely circulating Delta variant. Vaccination continues to be the best way to protect ourselves. And that's CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. And President Joe Biden yesterday tied his legislative priorities on voting rights, police reform and climate change to Martin Luther King Jr.'s push for racial justice as he marked the 10th anniversary of the opening of the Civil Rights Leaders Memorial on the National Mall. From here, we see the ongoing push and pull between progress and struggle over the self-evident truths of our democracy. And in our nation, we now face an inflection point in the battle literally for the soul of America. And it's up to us together to choose who we want to be and what we want to be. I know, I know the progress does not come fast enough. It never has. And the process of governing is frustrating and sometimes dispiriting. But I also know what's possible. If we keep the pressure up, if we never give up, if we keep the faith, to make real the full promise of America, we have to protect that fundamental right, the right to vote, the sacred right to vote. You know, it's democracy's threshold liberty. With it, anything is possible. Without it, nothing is. Today, the right to vote and the rule of law are under unrelenting assault from Republican governors, attorneys general, secretary of state, state legislators. And they're following my predecessor, the last president, into a deep, deep black hole in the abyss. We have to keep up the fight and get it done. And I know the moment we're in. You know the moment we're in. I know the stakes. You know the stakes. This is far from over. I believe the American people, the vast majority are with us. I think they see much more clearly 
what you've all been fighting for your whole lives now. It's in stark relief. The bad news, we had a president who appealed to the prejudice. The good news is that he took the, he ripped the Band-Aid off, made it absolutely clear what's at stake. I think the American people will follow us. Invoking King, Biden said the country was still working to live up to its ideals as a nation and had reached an inflection point, as he just said, on issues including fighting voting restrictions. During a Wednesday press conference, Rito Glavin, attorney for former governor, New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo, presented a formal submission requesting an independent review of Attorney General Letitia James' report that found Cuomo sexually harassed 11 women. According to Glavin, Attorney General James, who's in the process of launching her own campaign for governor, admitted to interfering in the investigation. The attorney general would not disavow any intention she had to run for governor in 2022. And because of that conflict, which was a political conflict, the governor did not want the attorney general's office to conduct or oversee the investigation. And that is something that was part of specific discussions between the governor and the attorney general before that referral letter was drafted. And the language of that referral letter was drafted precisely to limit the involvement of the attorney general. Speaking a month ago, Attorney General Tish James was coy about her plans to run for governor. He has never held himself accountable for how his behavior affected our state government. So let's not lose sight of what's important. It's not me. It's not Mr. Cuomo but the survivors of his harassment. So Eric Adams was here, was here last, and he um, is the Democratic nominee. And here I am, Letitia James, and so who knows? <laughs> Don't read anything into that. Tish <laughs> James. And Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul came into office when Cuomo resigned earlier this year. She says she plans to run for re-election. Environmental groups want Governor Kathy Hochul to sign a bill that mandates monitoring the state's drinking water for emerging contaminants, including the group of widely used chemicals known as PFAS. Mikaela Savitt reports. The bill has passed both the state assembly and Senate. Rob Hayes with Environmental Advocates New York says if it becomes law, every state water utility would be required to test for certain contaminants in drinking water. He says testing for the suggested 40 chemicals would help prevent harm, such as the crisis detected in 2015 in Hoosick Falls. We need to be proactive in protecting our drinking water. We should not allow contamination to fly under the radar for decades and make people sick. This week, the Environmental Protection Agency also announced a roadmap for PFAS pollution, which includes increasing monitoring, research, and reporting requirements for toxic chemicals. However, Hayes says it wouldn't apply to small state water systems that are seeing a testing gap. A letter signed by dozens of environmental groups says a toxic chemical testing law created in response to the Hoosick Falls crisis wasn't implemented because the State Department of Health didn't provide a list of contaminants. Proponents of the bill are now insisting it be delivered to the governor as soon as possible.
the Department of Health will have to begin a regulatory process that within 90 days will produce a final list of emerging contaminants for water utilities all across the state to test for. So the sooner the governor signs the bill, the sooner that communities will start finding out what's in their drinking water. The testing suggestions include 27 PFAS chemicals and 13 additional emerging contaminants the EPA has identified as potentially harmful. The legislation would also require that the list of emerging contaminants must be updated every three years. I'm Michaela Savitt for New York News Connection. And finally, a new bookstore is finally up and running in the Bronx, a borough that is virtually a bookstore desert. But this isn't a brick-and-mortar bookstore. Bronx-bound books is a bookstore on wheels. Hannah Fulmer reports. You ready to buy some books? Yes! That's Anna Goldman. She's a mom and a teacher in the Bronx. We're watching her son Preston inspect a book in the Froggy series, while Preston's twin brother Chase peeks in from the doorway. Look, you need to see this. This is awesome. Oh my gosh, look at this. Stop. Look. Boogie boogie, y'all. Before Bronx-bound books became a haven for people like the Goldmans, it looked very different. This was a regular passenger shuttle bus. Owner Latanya Devon has been raising money and renovating for nearly 18 months. During that time, she was lugging around milk crates of books in Ubers and renting U-Haul trucks. So the floors were torn down. Uh, we took all the seats out. The upholstery is all new, designed by me. I have all the material. Um, the blue and the orange and like the light color is to represent the Bronx flag. Devon started the bookstore in March 2020 when she was laid off because of COVID-19. But the idea of owning a bookstore has been in the back of her mind since she was a child. But it's not just about getting any books in readers' hands. Devon tries to offer books that represent the diversity of her community, too. That means authors and characters of color front and center, plus special attention to Bronx authors, too. I remember growing up, I couldn't find a book that was written by someone that looked like me. So it was very intentional that when you walk in here, you're going to see books written by people and the covers that look like, you know, us, the people in the Bronx. Of course, we have books on Malcolm X, Frederick Douglass, Nelson Mandela. You know, there is a Stephen King book around here somewhere. You know, you can find it. John Grisham, he's somewhere around here. You can find it. But when I was looking for Maya Angelou, when I was looking for Sonia Sanchez growing up, it was somewhere around there. <laughs> you know, I had to dig and find them. And this representation matters to customers like Anna Goldman, the shopper you heard from earlier. We work very, very hard to provide books that are windows and mirrors to our kids um, with authors of color and characters of color in all genres, not just about issues that are historical, but just good books written with people that look like my students and like my children. Right? You see every kind of books in there that you saw when you were in those bookstores when you were little and also the ones you should have and you didn't. You can find the Bronx Bound Books schedule on their social media. For those who don't live in the Bronx, the bookstore hosts virtual events as well. Hannah Fulmer, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Hannah. And that's some of the news for Friday, October 22nd, 2021. The news producer Linda Perry, our engineers Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.